Our passage this morning is from Luke 2, now verses 8 to 12, not 1 to 12 as originally planned. You can find it in the back of your bulletin, under sermon notes, or in your Bibles. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Wrong one. Thanks, Allie. You're more used to saying that line, right? Yeah, no problem. By the way, I've had some people ask, why do we do that? Uh, it's one of the ways we um, unite ourselves, actually, to the universal church down through the ages. So one of the earliest uh, confessions of the church, actually, was to say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So in the early hundreds, 200s, 300s AD, the church was already doing this as it met. And we're just uniting ourselves to that grand tradition. And it's also to remind us that when we hear the word spoken, preached, and, and uh, read, that we're not just listening to, you know, one of the ways is every time you open this book and you read it, you are actually hearing that God who created everything, who sustains everything, who loves you more than you could ever imagine. You're hearing that God speak directly to you. So that's why we do that. Um, anyhow, hey, I'm glad that happened. Give me an opportunity to explain that. Uh, also, I just want to share two other things uh, very quickly before we get going here. Uh, and the first is, you know, we mentioned uh, Ali, thankfully. What I want to point out is this. Uh, Kendra, uh, as was mentioned, was spent some time in prison this week, and now she's with us again. And there is a tendency, things that happen to us, because we, wanna, we end up feeling ashamed or embarrassed that these kinds of things happen to us. And I just want to acknowledge and praise Kendra for her openness and honesty about what she's facing and what's going on in her life, because she is a trophy of grace, and that has sunk so deep in her heart that um, spending time in Barton Street does not, is not something that she hid from her church family, but she actually, when I went to see her, she asked for you to pray for her while she was there. And so you and I buttoned up, cleaned up, all put together Christians can take a lesson from our dear friend, and uh, I want to honor her for that. Uh, in front of all of you and make her cry and because uh, I'm only happy when somebody cries at church. <laughs> then I've done my job. Uh, and give you, uh, give you guys open free license to go and congratulate her and give her a hug if she'll uh, give you one and, and tell her how glad you are to see her again. So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, I want to thank you as... Um, 
brothers and sisters of our dear friend Nathan for your incredible generosity that you showed last week uh, when we took up an, an offering just as a token of our love for Nathan and our desire to support uh, Kendra, uh, not Kendra, sorry, Lara, Serenity, and Kane. Uh, we raised almost $9,500 in one uh, Sunday service to show our love for, for them, and we are not a, a large body. And I just want you to know that when I, when I shared that with Lara, she was utterly gobsmacked uh, deeply, and we hope will one day come to love Jesus very deeply the way we do. So thank you for that. Okay. Um, Allie's prayer was actually a very good introduction to this morning's message because what she did was she juxtaposed these two strange very different things that are happening in our lives right now at this time of year, and it happens every year. If you're a Christian, you celebrate Christmas because it is the, the reminder of the coming of Jesus Christ into this world to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, to ascend for us, to reign for us, so that we are free from sin, death, hell, we are free from guilt, we are free from shame, we are free from all the things that, that can weigh us down in this life, and yet, this time of year, which is supposed to be such a celebratory time of year because of all those things I just mentioned, is also a time of year where we experience often anxiety, uh, because some of us are going to be put in situations like when we're visiting with people and going to parties and stuff like that. We have, we have, a, we, we have a bit of social anxiety uh, that, that exists within us, and so these things are stressful experiences for us. Or maybe we have families getting together where some people don't get along really well with other people, and relationships are not exactly what we wished and, and hoped they would be, and so there's tension, and so you're anxious about that. Some of us are experiencing and being reminded of tremendous loss, because around this time of year, maybe somebody in, close to us uh, passed away, and when we do get together, there's an empty seat at the table, and it's a reminder to us of that pain. Some of us are, uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, it was just there. Some of us are looking around the room maybe this morning and seeing all these happy families together, enjoying each other's company, etc., but we uh, are, are in the midst of a really difficult trial in our lives because of health issues or because of financial issues or because of uh, relational issues. And so there's this tension between the joy of Jesus coming and the 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 not yet of Jesus' arrival, because we still live in, in the midst of tough circumstances. And that's precisely what Advent is actually all about. It's about experiencing this longing, having this, this waiting, this, this expectation, so that we can welcome the Christ child, who not only meets us in the here and now and our experiences in the here and now, but also provides a hope for the future. And it's a, it's a very strange time of year for a lot of people because of that. 
What I'd like us to do this morning is I'd like us to understand how Jesus comes to satisfy a deep longing that we have and how we need to receive him in order to have that deep longing satisfied. Think of it this way. Um, The Bible basically says this, that you and I were built by God for God. We were built to be in fellowship and relationship with him. And when we're in a perfectly harmonious relationship with the God who created us, we experience flourishing. We experience joy unimaginable. We find our hearts fully and completely satisfied. But Scripture's story is, is that human beings rebelled against this God who created us for fellowship with Him, and sin has cut us off from Him. From him. And so this longing that we have only grows. But we try to find satisfaction for that longing in ways that are destructive to us and to the relationships around us. Um, you know, when you're thirsty and you become really, really thirsty, what you can discover is, is that you will, you will drink almost anything to try to satisfy that thirst. You grab a cup of coffee, and sometimes you can be some, human beings can become so desperate because they are so thirsty that they'll, they'll actually drink things that will kill them. They'll drink windshield washer fluid. They'll drink antifreeze. You've heard many stories of people who are on, uh, on these, uh, you know, their boat has shipwrecked or something, and they end up on a lifeboat on the sea, and they're so desperately thirsty that they drink salt water the water from the sea, and it actually kills them rather than satisfies their thirst. Well, the promise of Advent, of Jesus coming, is is that there is one who can ultimately satisfy our thirst. There is one who can ultimately meet our deepest needs, but we have to receive him properly. You have to receive this one the way that he says we are to receive him. And how are we to receive him? Well, it's explained by the, the angel in verse 11 of our passage. It says, Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, or he is the Christ, the Lord. To have our first thirst satisfied and to have our longing completely fulfilled, we have to receive him the right way. And this is the right way. You can receive Jesus this Advent season only one way. You have to receive him as Savior. You have to receive him as Messiah or Christ. And you have to receive him as Lord. And if you don't, this whole Christmas story is actually not good news to you. It is terrifying news to you. So we're going to look at these three things together. What does it mean to receive Jesus as Savior? What does it mean to receive Him as Messiah or Christ? And what does it mean to receive Him as Lord? And again, I I anticipate that we will have time for questions at the end of the the message this morning, so be prepared for that in case you you have any. First of all, to receive, to do. Well, He came to save, okay. Save us from what? Sin. Sin. Yes. Death. Yes. Hell. Yes. Satan. Yes. Yes. What does that mean, though, for us? Well, that means that we need to know that we needed saving. You can't have Jesus as a Savior if you don't know you need Him as that Savior. You know, people love John 3.16. Some of you probably have it memorized, right? Anybody dare try to say what John 3.16 says? 
Well done, Tom. Nailed it. Since it wasn't too loud, I'll do it too. For God so loved the world. What is, how does it go again? <laughs> that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. And we love that verse. It's awesome. We even put it on placards and bring it to sporting events in the hopes that we can evangelize North American culture by them seeing our sign at a football game. But maybe we should keep reading in John chapter 3 because you know what it says carrying on after verse 16? It says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But listen to this. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Um, Jesus actually says in that passage that if you don't trust in Jesus, you stand condemned. That's legal language. You are a criminal, guilty of a capital, capital sorry, offense. And I wonder sometimes, do we really feel that? Do we really believe that we are deserving of punishment. We are deserving of being eternally and forever cast out of the presence of God because of the things we've done. Now, some of us, we know that we desperately uh, uh, need God's forgiveness and we need people that we like to think we are. But many of us go through life basically pretty good. We don't do anything really bad. We don't end up getting roped and sent to prison because we you know, we maybe lie a little bit here, we maybe lust a little bit there, we maybe covet a little bit there, but we don't really think, you kind of either in your head go, mm, I don't know if it's quite that bad, or you say very, very quickly, oh yeah, 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 I know I'm a sinner, but, but, but I know Jesus died for me, and you don't really feel the weight of it. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 says this about the human race of which, as far as I can tell, everybody in this room is a member of. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and ministry mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, how often do you read a passage like that and you think of them? Yeah, that's what's wrong with the world. Those people out there are like that. Those people out there do those things. That's a great characterization of those people out there. But the Apostle Paul is writing this to a church. And he's indicting the entire human race. Even nice, upper, upper middle class, western people like you and me.
the hardest thing to convince a person of in our culture right now is that they are a sinner. And I, friends, I have racked my brain to try to figure out how to convince people that they're a sinner. But you know what I've discovered? You can't really tell anybody they're a sinner. They have to discover it. God convinces us of our sin when we have our sin displayed to us. Is any of us really going to get excited about the coming of Jesus into the world? You know, it's just going to be a cool story, a nice little picture to put on the front of your Christmas card with the little manger scene and the soft glow around it, and it's all warm and fuzzy in the cold, dark winter nights that we're experiencing right now, but you're not going to actually have your heart burst with joy and celebration until you are willing to admit that before this almighty God God, you are a, a condemnable sinner. I might be preaching this church empty right now, but this is the truth of the gospel. And you know, in our culture, more and more, we have tried very, very hard to minimize guilt, to minimize sin. You go to a, 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 a counselor, you go to a therapist, and you talk to them about your problems, and they're not even allowed. They're not even allowed to pronounce a moral judgment upon the things that you have done. And yet people are walking out of these offices time and time again, faced with a guilt that they simply cannot escape, faced with the sense of shame that they simply cannot overcome, and no amount of telling you that it's not that bad, that you're, you're actually pretty good, that compared to certain people, you're, you're certainly not that as, as serious a sinner as they are. No amount of doing that can take away that sense of guilt that you and I desperately need removed, and that's what Jesus came to do as a savior. People are walking around in this world with a tremendous amount of guilt over their shoulders and no amount of drugs or alcohol or sex or success or, or therapy can take away this nagging sense that there is something desperately wrong with them. But Jesus came into the world to do the, that very thing. That's why he's here. To declare to you, yes, you're a sinner, but I'm here to save you from that sin. That's the first thing. We got to receive him as a savior. Second of all, we need to receive him as Messiah or Christ, depending on the translation you use. What this word means basically is anointed one. And what it means is this. He is God's way of salvation. He is God's way of salvation. It is very popular to, to, to say right now that out of all the religions of the world, everybody is basically standing at the bottom of a mountain and God is at the top of the mountain and through one religion you go up the east side and through another religion you go up the west side and through another religion you go up the south side but we all, through our different expressions of our religious beliefs and sincerity, we reach the pinnacle of the mountain where we find God. Well, how do you square that with Paul saying no one seeks after God? 
No one seeks after God. See, what's unique about the gospel is, is that you don't climb anything to get to him. What's Advent about? It's about the coming of Emmanuel. It's about God with us. It means that God came off the mountain to seek you and me. That's, that's the incarnation. That's Christmas. To receive him truly, to receive him properly, means you have to receive him exclusively as your only hope. It is very common for us today to kind of cobble together our own religions, to take a little bit of spirituality from this place and a, a little bit of relationship with God working out. It's like going to the buffet. It's very much like going to the buffet. You guys ever go to buffet restaurants? I, have a, I do have a bit of a moral problem with buffet restaurants in a sense because it totally unleashes my gluttony. I don't need more ways to... Uh, express my gluttony, but that's what happens at a buffet restaurant, right? You walk along this, these banks of food choices, and you pick and choose the food you like, and you leave the stuff you don't. We used to take our kids to the Mandarin once in a while when they were younger, and it drove us nuts because they went for french fries and ice cream. And like plateful after plateful after plateful of this stuff. And, and maybe hot dogs if they were there. Because that's what we want. But you know, if you do that with religion, and you, you just sort of accept the things you like and pass over the things you don't like, you know what you end up getting? You're getting a God that looks an awful lot like you. You've got to receive him as he presents himself. But you know what? That's only fair if you think about it because if he really is a person, and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about God is a person and he came in the flesh as a living, breathing human being. You only want to be received as you present yourself too. If I come to you and say, hey, let's be friends. I'd like to get to know you. And you say, sure, let's be friends. And, and we, we become friends and you share a little bit about yourself. And one of the things I discover is that you really, really, really hate Mexican music, uh, not music, Mexican food. You don't like it. And I come, you come over and every time you come over, I make tacos and burritos and all this kind of stuff. Because I say, well, you know, in my mind, you really do like Mexican food, like me. After a while, you say, we don't have a relationship. Time. But Jesus, me. But you can't, you can't manipulate me into being something you want me to be. Finally, you have to receive him as Lord. I mean, this is what the angel says: He is Christ, the Lord. What does that mean? It means he's not a guru, he's not a wise man, he's not just an enlightened figure, human being. He's not even a perfect man, like some cults will say. No, no, no. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God himself. He is the creator of you, he is the redeemer of you, and he is the ruler of you. And that's how we have to receive him. As our ruler and what that means, friends, is, is that means we have to obey. It means we have to take our lives, 
that all our lives we have been told by the culture in which we live and frankly in a, in a, in a fair amount of our parenting uh, that we've experienced that we are independent people. That we are autonomous. That we make our And yet, Jesus says, no, you have to take all these things that you've thought, that you've been taught by your culture, taught by your upbringing, and and taught by your own sort of ingrained human nature, and you have to deny that. All these things that say you are in charge, you have to deny that, and you have to submit yourself entirely and completely to my authority. I talk to many people who say they struggle with having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They say, I don't, I don't feel close to him and I don't feel ten- connected to them. And as I talk with them and they, I ask them a little, a little bit about their lives and, and soon you start to discover one of the main reasons for that and that's because they don't really obey him. They have kind of an intellectual relationship with God and with Jesus. They, they know the right doctrines, etc., but they don't have a personal relationship with him because they don't obey him. Think about it. This is a book. I know I said it was the word of God, but I'm using it now just as a book. Pretend this is a Dr. Seuss book then, okay? This is an inanimate object, right? It's an impersonal object. It cannot make demands on me. It cannot, it cannot uh, make any claims on me like... If I want to read it, I read it. If I don't want to read it, I don't read it. It's up to me. Same thing with my car. My car doesn't make any demands on me. It just is, and I'm the one who uses it as I see fit, when I want to use it as I see fit. But a human, a person is, is, a, is a higher order of being. If you want to have any kind of relationship with a human being, to some degree, they are going to make claims upon you. They're going to make demands upon you. They're going to demand certain things from you. They will have their needs. They will have their wants. They will have their dreams. They will have their desires. And you will have to submit yourself to those to some degree, at the very least, if you want to have any kind of real personal relationship with them. They're going to want some of your time. They're going to want you to reveal something of yourself. They're going to want you to do things with them or for them. It's only normal. And depending on the closeness of the relationship, those demands get bigger and bigger and bigger. I still remember when, I, when Jessica and I first got married and I was in seminary and I uh, went to a class and it was an evening class and after the class I went out with the guys and, and we went to a, 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 a coffee shop and uh, we, uh, we sat there and we talked more about theology and ph- philosophy and all this cool stuff that we were learning and then we went home and I walked in the door and she was just like full of tears and blood. No, you're alive! I said, what? I just went out with the guys after class for a little bit. It was no big deal. And she said, but I didn't know, and I didn't know if you were alive or dead. I didn't know if you were safe or not. What's wrong with you? And I realized, wait a minute, now I'm in this, this deep, intimate relationship with another person. I'm accountable to them. I can't just do whatever I want anymore. Now that's with a spouse. How much more is it with a God? With someone who you owe everything to. An eternal, all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving being for whom you depend on for absolutely everything. What's the right way 
to relate to a person like that. Who holds the, the universe together with the power of his word in, 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 in his little pinky. He has power to keep the entire universe going, to keep your heart beating and, and every other person in this room's heart beating and our lungs pumping air. What's the right way to relate to a, a, a person like that? As your assistant? As your secretary? relationship with you, but I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to deal with you every day. But, of course, when I have a problem, I want you to be there. I need you to be there for me. It's like, it's almost like, don't call us, we'll call you. And Jesus says, you have to submit everything to me. If you want to receive me as I am, you have to receive everything about me. So he says, you know, keep sex within this very specific context. And we say, I'll think about it. You know, I really like her. I really like him. I'm kind of lonely. I'm a little worried about maybe I'll lose them if, I, if we don't move forward in our relationship this way. I have needs. I, 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 need, to, I need to satisfy those needs or I won't be happy. Or Jesus says, be radically generous. Don't just look at what the, what the Cana Canadian census on how much money Canadians give away and say, well, that's what generosity is. No, no, no. You need to be radically generous with your, with your time, with your talents, with your finances. And you say, well, that's kind of impractical. You say, well, it's been a tough year, Lord. You know, I have bills to pay. I have a family to take care of. And of course, I have retirement to look forward to. Who's going to take care of me? I know in my own life, very often, I am treating my God as more as an advisor than I am as a Lord. And then we wonder, well, why am I not feeling this relationship? Why am I not experiencing the real personal power of this relationship? Because the only way to know someone personally and the only way to know your Lord personally, friends, is if you obey. Well, why is that? Well, according to Scripture, it's because that's the gateway to adventure, to joy, and to fulfillment, actually. Okay? But then he says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another ad. He him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. You hear that? As we submit to God's authority over our lives, as we give up control over our lives, the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do that in the first place, because you can't do it by your own power, but the Holy Spirit who empowers you to do it in the first place, he is in you, he manifests himself to you, he He. He, you experience his presence in a powerful, impersonal way that you cannot know in any other venue or avenue. You can study the Bible all you want. You can uh, read theology. You can sing music. You can do all these things. But when you take steps of faith and you actually obey and throw yourself completely on him and dependence upon him, then you will know his presence in a way you've never known before. 
but only then, because then the Holy Spirit who is in you, it says, the Holy Spirit who is in you will make Jesus more known to you. I know it sounds mysterious. I know it does. But all I can tell you is I'm, I'm really, in some ways I feel a little bit like a, a novice at this. But there have been moments and times in my life where I've, I've done it. I always use the illustration from Indiana Jones. I can't remember which movie it is anymore, but there's a scene in Indiana Jones where he is being chased by just the latest group of tribesmen who want him dead, and he comes to a gorge, but he has heard that there is an invisible bridge to that gorge. And of course, he tries all the things that we human beings try to do. He tries to be sure that the bridge is where it is before trusting that the bridge is where it is. So he takes dirt and he tries to like throw it out there and find it and, and have it fall on the bridge. And none of it works. And finally, he's desperate and he steps out. And as soon as he puts his full weight on the bridge, the bridge appears. But not until he puts his full weight on the bridge does the bridge itself to us, very often. That's how he shows his presence to us. He says, you need to trust me and obey me. You can't have me on your, your terms. You can't go to God and say to him, well, look, I want to trust you and I want to obey you, but here's the terms, Lord. I want this, I want this. Can you make sure that this happens? Can you ensure that, that I, I come out on the other side of this problem this way? Then I'm willing to trust you as long as you can promise me that. And he says in his word, he says, are you looking at the cross? Are you seeing on the cross that I sent my son into this world to live for you? to be touched by sin for you, to face the consequences of your sin for you, and actually go to that cross and hang and die a miserable criminal's death for you because I love you so much. He faced my eternal, the full breadth and height and depth of my judgment on your sin for you. I love you that much. You need more? And now you want to say, you want this and this and this and this before you receive me? What's wrong with you? Uh, sorry for flipping out on you. I'm talking to myself really right now. <laughs> What's wrong with me? You know, can you imagine a kid who gets a Division I scholarship to some college in the States, shows up for the first day of practice and the coach talks to him and the, and the kid says, you know, I'm really excited about being here, but I want you to know, I don't want you to push me too hard. Okay? Like, I don't like wind sprints. Not my thing. Don't make me do wind sprints. Or her and say, what do you want? Do you want greatness? Do you want to be everything that you could be? I see what you could be because I know you need to submit yourself to me. You need to trust me. You need to do whatever I say and stop with the excuses and just follow. And I promise you, you will come out the other side, the person that you could be with all the potential that you have to be fully realized. But we resist all the time. We resist. I, it's a bit of a sarcastic quote, but I must say, I do love it. It's on the front of your bulletin. This is Don Carson writing. 
and he says this. I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate uh, missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like $3 worth of the gospel, please. Biting, isn't it? Do an experiment sometime. Think about the most joyful, most seemingly spirit-filled Christians you know. And then think about their lives. How do they spend their time? What do they pour themselves out in? I promise you, I bet you dollars to donuts, they're going to be people of God simply because they believe God is calling them to do it. They're going to be people who are taking, putting to death sin in their lives seriously simply because God's calling them to do it. And we look at them and we admire them and we think that they're a special class of people and they're not. They're not. There's one special class of people and he's in heaven right now interceding on your behalf. Remember, friends, he held nothing back. He submitted absolutely everything for us. He sacrificed his entire self for us. How can we give anything less back? Receive the him that he says he is. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe again of all that you have done for us in Jesus, and we admit that we remain timid And we remain even sometimes a little bit sort of meh about Jesus coming into the world. Father, don't let us stay there. Light a fire in us, Father. Light a fire in us that leads to repentance, that leads to commitment, that leads to obedience that leads to joy. Thank you for coming, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your patience with us. Wow, thank you so much for your patience with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.